Ooh, that was dramatic, wasn't it? If I had a trophy, Doug, I'd give it to you just for remembering my four kids' names. Sometimes I don't do that. It's good to be with you tonight. If voting was as much fun as Vacation Bible School, I'm sure they'd have a much better turnout. But uh, it was a little strange pulling up. I saw people with signs, and I thought, and then I saw dinosaurs, and I thought, I don't know which direction to go. I think I need to pick the dinosaurs, but... Uh, it's good to have you with us tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, in just a few moments we'll be spending our time in Numbers chapter 16. If you'd like to go ahead and be turning there. Numbers chapter 16. God's might in Korah's rebellion is the title of tonight's study. We've been talking about God's might in a number of different areas of life and Scripture. And this is one of the most fascinating and interesting stories in all of Scripture, in my opinion. And I think that you'll enjoy studying it with me tonight as well. At least I hope that you do. And I believe we'll have some wonderful lessons to take from this tonight. What do you think of when you hear the word rebel or rebellion? I'm not necessarily asking you to say it out loud. But when you hear the word rebel or the word rebellion, what are some of the things that come to your mind? I, was just, I just made an honest slide. These are the things that came to my mind when I heard the word rebel and rebellion. Okay, you got James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause. You got Billy Idol singing the Rebel Yell. You got Mel Gibson in Braveheart, which is a movie about an actual rebellion. And then you got the symbol for the rebellion in the Star Wars movies which is, of course, fictional, but all of these things kind of came to mind. So sometimes when you talk about a rebel or a rebellion, you may or may not be talking about anything that's necessarily good or bad. Because the definition of, of a rebellion is simply a, an open, organized, and armed resistance to one's government or ruler, which, by the way, is the only reason we're sitting here today, right? Would we call that good or bad? I would call it good. So that's not necessarily bad. The second definition is much more broad and vague. Resistance to or defiance of any authority, control, or tradition. That really could be anything, couldn't it? So as we gather together tonight to talk about rebellion, I want to sort of begin by acknowledging that this is something that humanity has dealt with from the beginning of time. We, we are not born in sin, but we are born with an inevitable sinful nature that's going to emerge, aren't we? We are inevitably, as Romans 3.23 says, we're all inevitably going to fall short. We're all inevitably going to sin. And what is sin if it's not rebellion against God's law? Something that, that's almost built into us, that we're going to eventually, like Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3, make that wrong choice to say, God, I don't care what you said. I want to do what I want to do. That looks good, that looks fun, that looks pleasurable. I'm going to rebel against you and do what I want. We often label our young people as being rebellious, don't we? We often look at rebellion as a stage or a phase that some people often go through. I want to put a quote up on the board. I want you to consider this quote, and then I want you to give me a guess as to who said it and when. Okay, here's the, the quote that I want us to, to think about for just a minute this evening. Our youth now love luxury, they have bad manners, contempt for authority, they show disrespect for elders and love to chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. 
They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up their food, and tyrannize their teachers. Does that sound current to you? If you were to hazard a guess as to when this quote was said and who said it, you might say some modern psychologist or a modern teacher or preacher, but you would be very wrong and you would be very late. This was said some 2,300 years ago by a man named Socrates. He was right then, and he doesn't know it, but he's still right, isn't he? We still have this same rebellion that takes place in our hearts when we reach a certain age where we're testing our boundaries, trying to find our independence, trying to learn how to make good decisions, and some of that is normal. But the story we're talking about tonight takes it a step further. I want to begin in Numbers chapter 16 by talking about the setting of this story because you really can't fully appreciate what takes place in chapter 16 until you understand what takes place leading up to chapter 16. When we get to chapter 16, we are on what I would call a well-worn path. That's why this picture is up here. It's a well-worn path. It's some tendencies and habits that the Israelites have formed at this point. And here's what we're talking about. The well-worn path begins for our purposes in Numbers chapter 12 when you have a rebellion that takes place against Moses by his own brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron. Do you remember that? They've been led out of Egypt by this man who came seemingly out of nowhere. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. He comes back into Egypt. He leads them out of 400 plus years of slavery Several chapters later, his own brother and sister are rebelling against him. Now, you remember what happened. This didn't work out very well for them, did it? Especially if your name was Miriam. She was struck with leprosy. Do you remember that? Because of this behavior, struck with leprosy, she had to stay outside the camp for seven days, and everybody knew about it. Because the Bible said that the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. Verse 16. So everybody's just sitting in the camp twiddling their thumbs. When is Miriam going to be able to come back so we can go on and go? It's like me sitting outside this building in the minivan with all my kids waiting on. Well, I won't say. Because I don't mind doing it. But Miriam is struck by leprosy in front of everyone who's, who's, who's part of this nation. And they wait on her to leave and they probably think to themselves... Ooh, I don't want to do that. Right? Isn't that what you would think? I don't want to do that. And then we come to chapter 13 and 14, and this is probably the most famous part of this path. The spies that were sent into the land of Canaan, 12 men who were the heads of their tribes, sent in to spy out the land, not so that they could tell whether or not they were going to be able to take it. God already promised it to them. But these men have forgotten that. They come back and 10 out of the 12 bring a bad or negative report to the people, and it convinces all of the people, except for Joshua and Caleb, and we assume Moses, to rebel. Rebel against God. We want to go back to Egypt. How, how dare you lead us out here in the wilderness to die? And do you remember what happened then? Well, first of all, those ten men were struck dead by God with a plague immediately. They died in the presence of everybody. The rest of the nation was told by God, listen, I'll tell you what, since you don't have faith in me to give you this promised land, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Everybody in this group who's 20 years old and older, you are going to die walking around in the wilderness. One year for every day that you spied out this land, you don't have enough faith in me, you're not going in. 
your children can go in. Everyone was part of this. Everyone saw this rebellion of sorts fall flat on its face. They saw the death. They saw the punishment. They were currently experiencing the punishment. And yet, in the same chapter, chapter 14 at the end of that chapter, they say to themselves, well, we're going to take the promised land anyway. Maybe, maybe God didn't mean it. We're just going to take the promised land anyway. So they go up and they go to try to go into the promised land and they suffer a humiliating defeat because God's not with them. The Ark of the Covenant's not with them. Moses is not with them. It fails. Miserably. This is the well-worn path that we're on. To top it all off, in chapter 15, we have a public execution of a man from the Israelite community who's picking up sticks on the Sabbath day and he is brought outside the camp by everyone and stoned until he's dead. Now, I just want to ask an honest question. If you're an Israelite, this isn't happening over the course of ten years. This is happening over a very short period of time. If you're an Israelite and you're watching all of this, and they are, what do you come away with? Do you honestly come away with the idea that, well, I can do anything I want in this community? I don't have to answer to anybody. I can rebel anytime I want to. There won't be any consequences. Nobody will care. Is that the message you would come out with if you were an Israelite under these situations? No. If you're paying a bit of attention and keeping notes in any way, you say, I don't think it's a good idea to rebel against God. I don't think it's a good idea to rebel against the leadership. And yet, it's a well-worn path, isn't it? We're not even to our story yet, and we have a practiced mentality of rebellion. So it's no surprise when we get to chapter 16 that we find this is the situation. Read with me in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, son of Kohath, there's a lot of baby names in here if you're looking for one, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So what happens in this chapter is Korah, the ring leader of this group of people, he's got three real close buddies, Dathan and Abiram and On. And then he gathers these 250 people and they rise up and speak against and assemble against Moses. Now let's talk for just a minute about who these guys are. I hit the wrong button. Here we go. Who are you and what do you want? Let's talk for just a minute because I think this is very fascinating as I was studying this. These aren't just names. These are very interesting people and with interesting backgrounds. So follow me with this. Korah, to begin with, is a Levite. All right, Korah is a Levite. He is a distant cousin, according to Exodus 6.18, of Moses and Aaron. He's related to these people. It seems to be a pattern. We rise up against our relatives, right? He's specifically one of the Kohathites, which meant that he had some specific important duties in the service of the tabernacle. There are several psalms that are ascribed to the sons of Korah. So a lot of people think maybe their responsibility was the music 
of the tabernacle. I'm not exactly sure, but they had some pretty specific responsibilities. It also seems, if you study a little bit, in Numbers chapter 3 and verse 30 especially, that perhaps Korah felt like he was passed up for a position of leadership within his own tribe. A younger man was given a position of leadership. Elizaphan. It sounds like a trial drug that you might take. Elizaphan. Don't take Elizaphan. He got the position of leadership, and maybe Korah felt like, well, why did he get that? I'm older, I've been around longer, I've got more experience, why didn't I get that? Maybe he felt passed over. For whatever reason, this is a man who's been given a specific position among God's people, and it's not good enough. I'm not satisfied with that. I want more. And you can bet your bottom dollar on this. This is not a plea for equal rights. This is not a plea for fair treatment. This is nothing less than an attempt to make a complete takeover of the religious and civil leadership of the nation of Israel. Moses and Aaron are it. They're not part of a committee. They're not part of a board of directors. Moses and Aaron were elected by God to lead these people. So if Korah and his people are going up against these two men, they're doing nothing less than trying to take over the entire group of people. So we've got here a man who's not satisfied with his position and he wants more. The other men, Dathan, Abiram, and On. Now On is not mentioned. On turns to off after, after this first verse. I don't know what happened to him. A lot of people think that he backed out of the rebellion. We really don't know. But Dathan and Abiram are pretty vocal in this rebellion. And you may or may not know that they are Reubenites from the tribe of Reuben. And if we know a little bit of history about what happened with the tribe of Reuben, we know that they probably are still a little salty and sore over the fact that their birthright has basically been taken away from them. Genesis chapter 49, verses 3 and 4, when that, that Reuben himself is being blessed by his father, you remember what he's holding? You're supposed to be first, but you're not going to be because of what you did. And so you've got this situation, maybe these Reubenites, are feeling passed over themselves. And here's an interesting tidbit. This is the layout of the camp. I don't know if you can read this. You probably can't. But this is a layout of the camp. Right down there on the bottom, the orange squares, the bottom right, that's the tribe of Reuben. Do you see who's camped right above Reuben? Those are the Kohathites. So I just want you to imagine, this was a real setup with a bunch of real people who camped out together every night. And the Kohathites and the Reubenites are right next to each other. Can you imagine the campfire discussions that led to this moment? Can you imagine they're cooking a hot dog or a s'more or whatever they cook? I don't know. Hey, aren't you tired of Moses? I'm just sick to death of Moses. Aaron thinks he's somebody. I just don't care for Aaron. He shouldn't even be in this position after what happened at Mount Sinai. I can lead this group better. I'll find us something different to eat. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I'm with you. I can imagine it didn't start in Genesis 16, or Numbers 16 rather. Probably started over a campfire because they live next to each other and they're talking back and forth. Dathan and Abiram and on, the Reubenites. 250 men who were the chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. I don't know why they joined in with this. Maybe they smelled blood in the water. Maybe they saw an opportunity, well, I can be part of this new regime. I can get more power than I currently have. Whatever they are, whoever they are, and whyever they did this, they're not the original heads of the children of Israel. You know how we know that? 
Because God just struck them dead. In chapter 14. The original heads of the tribes of Israel who went in to spy out the land are dead. And these guys have risen up in their place. You get rid of one crop of rebels, another one grows right up in their place, don't they? Nobody seems to learn anything. The 250 most respected men in the entire nation of Israel have thrown their lot in with Korah, the rebel. How could this be? This group of organized, respected rebels shows up, verse 15, with an offering. Did you notice that? An offering. You know why? Because all this is being done under the cover of religion. All this is being done with the Bible in hand. We are no different from you. Look how we're just as spiritually minded, just as religious. We believe the same things you believe. We belong in your position. It's all done under the cover of, hey, we're just trying to please God too. Isn't that ironic? These people rebelling against God are bringing an offering to God while they do it. So what exactly are these people saying? Let us examine what these people seem to be saying. You have gone too far. It's almost like a really good way to begin a speech. One commentator said this was an eloquent way to begin their speech. You have gone too far. Well, you want to hear what comes next, right? Some translations translate it like this. Why do you think you're so much better than anyone else? You take too much upon yourselves. That's what other translations say about this particular phrase. They're basically saying, we've had enough of you two. This is enough. We've, we've, we've taken as much from you as we're going to take. And today is the day that we say something about it. And this is how they follow that up. All in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is among them. Now let's pause for a minute. Is that true? Sure it's true. These are God's people. They're a holy nation. Of course they're all holy, and of course the Lord is among them. Doesn't this sound a lot like the serpent in Genesis 3? When he's taking something that's true, you will become like God. Yeah, you will. But not exactly the way that I'm framing it, right? It says all these people are, are holy and the Lord is among them. But the thing is, Korah was using that statement, distorting that statement for his own purposes. You ever have somebody quote Scripture to you and they're right about the Scripture, but they're wrong about the way they're using it or the, their attitude or what they're trying to accomplish? You ever had that happen? Scripture can be used in, in, in bad ways just as good as it can be used in good ways. Remember when Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 is trying to tempt him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple? Didn't the Bible say that God will catch you? Well, you've misused that. You've distorted that. And that's what Korah and his cohorts are doing here. They've been given a role by God, and they're not satisfied with it. We're all just as good as you are, Moses, so we deserve to be in your place. And then he says, why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Well, they didn't do that. Does anybody remember the chapter where, where Moses was standing outside the building with a sign saying, vote for me? I want to be the leader of Israel. In fact, I seem to remember in Exodus 3 and 4 that he did everything he could possibly do to get out of that job. I have a feeling that Moses, a little bit later in this story, is probably thinking, i tell you what, you can have it. If that's what God wants, 
Hey, this has been nothing but a headache for me. I don't care if you have this position. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. I argued against it. But God wanted me to have it. This is just not true. I didn't exalt myself. Aaron didn't exalt himself. God put us here. The other guys don't even have the guts. Dathan and Abiram, as you'll see in verse 12, they don't even have the guts to show up for this little meeting. They're still in their tents. Now we're going to see beginning in verse 12, they got some serious trash talking that they're going to do against Moses, but we're not quite there yet. So, let's, that's the situation. That's what's going on. Now let's notice the stubbornness in verse 4 down through verse 19. And I want to look at verse number 4 by itself for just a moment. When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. I want you to notice what Moses does not do. Moses does not get defensive. If we all raised our hand every time, if we've ever gotten defensive when we've been attacked, would you raise your hand? I already got mine up. Okay? I might get defensive tonight. I don't plan on it, but it's kind of like a reaction sometimes, isn't it? You want to attack me? You want to say something about me that's not true? Twist the truth of what I'm trying to do? I'll tell you what. I might defend myself. Aggressively. Moses didn't. The Bible says he fell on his face. One commentary says, an arrogant man might have lashed out. A threatened man might have become defensive. Moses was neither. Moses had no pride about this. Moses knew where he stood with God and with the people. He knew the situation. He just fell on his face. In other words, Moses just did the right thing. Matthew Henry said it this way, if others fail in their duty to us, it does not discharge us from our duty to them. Moses exemplifies that here, doesn't he? Moses, I guess, could have gotten out his staff and just started beating them. And God probably would have given his some supernatural power to do it. He was humble. He was meek. Fell on his face. What did he do while he was on the ground? How long did he stay there? I would submit to you that perhaps he prayed. God, what do I do? What do I say? How do I handle this situation? Maybe he thought to himself and reminded himself, God chose me for this. I stood at that burning bush that never burned up. I stood before Pharaoh. I raised my staff at the Red Sea. I went up on Mount Sinai and received the law. God chose me. He will take care of this for me. Do we pray that prayer when people attack us? Do we, do we fall on our face as it were and say, Lord, I, I know how you feel about me. I know how you feel about this person. I, I don't feel the need to handle this. Would you handle it for me? That's hard, isn't it? Moses is under attack in front of everybody and he falls on his face before God. When he rises... He speaks decisively. This is kind of why I think maybe he heard the voice of God while he was down there on the ground. This is what it says in verse 5. He said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is His and who is holy and will bring Him near to Him. The one whom He chooses, He will bring near to Him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. 
And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to Himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, that He has brought you near Him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? You can almost hear Moses' voice just kind of shaking. He doesn't want bad things to happen to these people, but he just can't understand why they don't get it. Here's what we're going to do, guys. Tomorrow you're going to bring your censers. You're going to stand before the Lord and He's going to show you who He picks. And I tell you what, if it's you, fine. And then he's, when He gets done with the plan, he, he, you can almost hear Him just shaking His head and saying, I just don't understand. God, God gave you everything. Why do you want more all the time? This is not going to end well. The instruction to take censors is pretty unusual since the priests were the only ones normally who were allowed to do this, but Moses seems to be saying, you want more power? I tell you what, as far, as far as it depends on me, you can have it. If God says okay, if God points to you instead of me, you can have this job. That's humility, isn't it? To, to set yourself and your ego aside and say, you know what, this is, this is not about me. I believe I'm in the right but if, if you can show me that I'm not, I'll step aside. Moses is a very humble man. Moses knows, though, that they are the ones who have gone too far in this situation. It seems like a lecture in verses 8-11, through 11, but it's really more of an opportunity, isn't it? Something bad is going to happen tomorrow, fellas. If I was you, I don't think I would go through with this. Matthew Henry also once said, those who aspire after and usurp the honors forbidden them put a great contempt upon the honors allowed them. When we're not satisfied with, with what we do have, we'll never be satisfied with what we don't. One of my favorite parts of this story, and I don't mean I really like it, I just mean it's, it's quite interesting, is, is what happens with, well, let me go back. We're still on stubbornness. What happens with Dathan and Abiram in chapter 16, verse 12 through 14? Read this with me. This is mind-blowing. Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, we will not come up. Let's stop there. Isn't that interesting? No, we don't want to come up there and talk to you. We would rather lob accusations and, and talk about you behind your back and send messages to you. That's what we'd rather do. Those people don't exist anymore though, do they? They're all on Facebook. Aren't they? I don't have the courage and the guts to talk to the person that I'm upset with, but I sure have the courage to type it out and press a button. Hide behind my phone or my little computer. I, no, I'm not coming over there to talk to you. That's, these guys are the precursor of the Facebook generation. We don't have the guts to talk to anybody, but we can sure tell you what we think of you from a distance. And that's what they do. Look what they say to Moses. 
we will not come up. Verse 13. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you must also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And this gets Moses fired up. Korah and 250 other people couldn't get him fired up, but these two from a distance, they got him fired up. Moses was angry, very angry, and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. This got Moses riled up, didn't it? Happens, doesn't it? You're handling everything in stride, and all of a sudden somebody says something, and you're like, well, I'm not, I ain't going to take that. That just makes me mad. Because every word in this statement was false. Everything they said was untrue and accusatory and placing the blame where it didn't belong. Dathan and Abiram. This is very interesting. In Psalm 106, when this rebellion is mentioned hundreds of years later, Korah is not even mentioned. It's just these two. Their attitude, their spirit of, I, I can't stand you, but I won't face you. I will say whatever I want about you, true or false, and what are you going to do about it? Because I'm not coming into your presence so that we can deal with it. I'm just going to handle it like this, like a coward. They're still here, aren't they? And what exactly happens, and pardon my uh, colloquialism, but what exactly happens to Korah and his mighty band of idiots here in, in the next part of this story? I know we're running out of time and I'm getting in the way of Kool-Aid and whatever we got back there. But I think we need to hear the rest of this story, don't you? Let's talk about the scene here. I don't know of any better way to handle this than to just read it. So listen very carefully as if you don't know what's about to happen. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. I don't know about you, but I'd be like, where do you want me to stand, Lord? How far back do I need to be? Do you want me to put a, a, something over my head or face? Because I'm all for that plan. That's what you would think Moses might say after this, this series of attacks and rebellions. But look what he says. They fell on their faces, I presume Aaron and Moses, and said, Oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, what one, shall one man sin and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones probably with their arms crossed. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth, and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he finished speaking, 
all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. Wow! I mean, I'm not real sure why we're teaching this to our kids. <laughs> They're going to have nightmares, aren't they? I was in this skit for the last two nights. I played Aaron. Thank goodness I didn't have to get swallowed out the back door of that classroom. But this is a seriously scary story, isn't it? These men, at the words of Moses, the ground splits open and swallows them up and then it closes back. And here's the weirdest part. After this has taken place and several other things happen, later in this same chapter, the people rebel again. And we're all thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not like those people. Mm, I'm not so sure that we're not. I do not have time. I'm sorry. I, I went longer than I thought about. I do not have time for all of this application, but let me quickly go through this with you if you don't mind. What does this mean? What is the substance of this for us? What does this have to do with you and I? What, what does this have to do with God's might? The Bible teaches us that this is still a problem. Jude verse 11. Woe to them, they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. This is a spirit of rebellion that's alive and well. And this is where I see it the most in myself and in other people. It's in these three areas. The church, where God has set leaders in specific roles, not because they're wonderful people, but because He needs leaders. He set them up in these specific roles, elders, deacons, preachers, teachers, and He's told us to submit to them, to honor them, to love them, to esteem them highly, and sometimes we do anything but. Don't we? We get on around the campfire with, with all of our buddies and we, we roast them. Boy, I didn't care for that sermon. I didn't care for that decision. I don't like how they're spending their money. On and on it goes. And before you know it, those little campfire discussions turn into something more serious and the church splits. It happens in the church, doesn't it? That spirit of Korah's rebellion. Does it happen in the family? Where God has said, Mom and Dad, you're in charge. You've got authority. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And what did I do as a teenager? I don't have to listen to you. I know you didn't do that, but I did. Rebellion against the people that God has put in a position. Not, they're not perfect, and neither was Moses. But don't rebel against the people that God put positions of authority. What about finally the government? I don't want to talk politics. I don't like it. I don't even like being this close to voting. I try to avoid it. But I tell you what, Romans 13 is pretty clear, isn't it? Let every one of you be subject to the governing authorities because those authorities were put there by God. They've got His authority behind them. You respect them. You honor them. You don't have to like everything about them. In fact, there's a lot of things not to like. But if you think that this was written during a time when the government was pro-God and perfect, you don't know much about history. Respect the positions. If you don't respect the people, respect the positions that God has set up 
for you and I to be submissive to. The real rebellion is the rebellion to be a Christian. Rebellion against God is easy. It's easy. This is what's difficult. By the mercies of God, I beseech you, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's hard. Don't be conformed. Don't be like everybody around you. Rebel against culture. Rebel against sin. Rebel against what people are doing around you. Rebel against rebellion. We see God's might in this story. And I'm afraid that if we don't submit to the positions that God has established, we're going to see that might again. He's not going to do it immediately and supernaturally every time we buck authority. But I'll tell you one thing, I, I, I don't want to be the person on Judgment Day who didn't submit to the people that God put in these positions because I'm afraid the ground might open up and swallow me. And I think we should all be reminded of that. I hope this has been encouraging and probably has been challenging as it has been for me. But let's close with a word of prayer and then you'll be dismissed for some refreshments. Father, we love You so much. We're grateful for Your Word, for the, the wonderful examples that You've shown us the, and the horrible examples that You've shown us so that we might have encouragement and comfort from the Scriptures. Father, help us not to be rebellious against You and against Your people, against those that You have set up in positions of authority. May we be submissive and humble and meek as Moses and Aaron were. And may You do our fighting for us. Help us to love, to be, to be humble, to be meek, and to love everyone the way that You have loved us. Please forgive us when we move against You, when we move against those that You have established. And please help us to to be more loving, encouraging, and kind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.